Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Dr. Sabrina Leslie. She's an associate professor in the Department of Physics at McGill University. So, Dr. Leslie, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Great. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to talk with you. All right, cool. Well, tell me a bit about your research. What are you working on? So, my group develops uh, what's called single molecule imaging methods for looking at and deconstructing molecular interactions. Um, so we're interested in applications ranging from basic questions in biology all the way up to developing new drugs for um, for medicine and therapeutic applications. Oh, very cool. I've heard that um, chemical bonding and molecular interactions happen, I don't know how fast, but like unbelievably fast, right? Yeah. So molecular interactions can occur over a wide range of timescales. Um, we are really interested in visualizing these interactions and to follow them in real time. So obviously, the time scale is important. Um, processes like transcription or DNA repair um, with small molecules binding to DNA can be imaged with time re- resolution on the order of milliseconds. Um, okay. So that's relatively slow compared to maybe what you're thinking. And then a lot of biological processes actually unfold over seconds to minutes. So watching molecules interact under native conditions for very long times is actually really important. Um, the speed of the camera determines our resolution, but for our applications, like several milliseconds is fine. Um, okay, I thought it was a lot faster than that. Hmm. Interesting. Well, the shape dynamics of individual molecules can be faster. And the time scales for dye photophysics can be faster, but following the molecular binding and unbinding and then the search of a like a protein on DNA is actually relatively slow, like tens of milliseconds. So that's really great because oh, with a fluorescence imaging and a camera, you can watch lots of molecules for, for long times as they bind and unbind and then deconstruct the mechanisms. Um, by which those processes are are operating. So what have you observed from your research? I mean, what what kinds of interesting yeah. things are you seeing that no one else sees? What do you know that no one else knows? Um, so one of the things that we've been looking at, and that's a great question, is um, how the configurations of DNA, so their shape and their coiling, influence um, the probability of certain sites to unwind and other molecules to bind and so in one project that we have in nucleic acids research, uh, we've been working with a scientist in the National Cancer Institute and an applied mathematician in the Genome Technology Center at Davis, UC Davis. And for many years, it hasn't been possible to really understand um, the role of DNA shape and conformation on how specific sites open and how other molecules bind when imaging them under what you would call cell-like conditions. So these molecules really need to be free and able to explore all of their available configurations. So what we've been able to do is essentially trap the molecules 
and watch them without handles, without anchoring them down. And I can talk more about that if you'd like to know how that works. But essentially, we've been able to learn um, how the coiling and other conditions like the ionic strength or how much salt is around or how much crowding is around influences the probability of, of these sites to open. Um, and we've been able to watch small molecules come in and bind and unbind as a function of time and these conditions under really cell-like conditions, but in vitro. Um, and that, that's a new achievement. How do you uh, even see this stuff? Because it happens in 3D. I mean, what if like something happens underneath, quote-unquote, what you're looking at or to the side? How do you see in 3D? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so our technique works. It's very simple, and we call it convex lens-induced confinement or click. It works by squeezing the molecules into little traps. So essentially, think of molecules, many of them, trapped in little glass boxes that you're imaging over a wide field. So you flow them in between two sheets of glass. They get squeezed into little boxes. And now you're imaging the interactions occurring in these little boxes. Um, and we are imaging in two dimensions, but there's nothing over or under them because what we're doing is squeezing the molecules into the focal plane of the microscope as well. So inside this little glass box, the fluorescence of the molecule um, is completely held in focus. Um, so there's nothing beside or above or below that we can't see. And in our work, um, when I say single molecule imaging, what I mean is that we have the resolution to observe each and every molecule. So we look at molecules one by one, many copies of them at once, and we follow all of their events in time. So there's nothing missing. What kind of resolution are you talking about? What scales? So here we're using fluorescence microscopy. Um, so the spatial resolution of a fluorescence microscope is around 150 nanometers per pixel. So we fluorescently labeled the molecules, which is how we track them. Um, so we're really after dynamic information. We can see when a molecule is free and diffusing around, and then when it binds to a target site on a substrate. So the fluorescence label, in a sense, is giving us spatial resolution better than the optical resolution. Yeah. So if you're squeezing them between two glass plates, how do you know you're not altering the shape of the molecule and it has enough freedom to uh, you know, move around like it likes to move around and take the shapes it needs to? Yeah, that's a great question. So we can verify that by doing these measurements as a function of the confinement. So for this experiment, we can look at the diffusion, you know, in boxes that are slightly bigger and slightly smaller. And in this particular case, we really wanted to emulate um, native-like conditions and not have the confinement affect the results. So we we vary the size and make sure that has no impact. Also, the molecules that we're using here are quite a lot smaller than the size of the small boxes in which they're being imaged. So like a small DNA oligoprobe or a small protein has a physical size around a few nanometers here. And the DNA substrate that's diffusing around on the order of a couple of hundred nanometers, whereas the wells that we imaged them were deliberately um, much bigger than that in terms of width and they occupy a less than a fraction of a percentage of the volume. Um, so in general, you need to control for that and check, but because molecules are so small, um, you can still get very good imaging um, and not influence their behavior. So there's no molecular cruelty in putting them in small cages and they could free roam? <laughs> 
There is. Yeah, they've been put in small cages and they can't escape. So that that's really important. Um, yeah, and commentaries of our work have <laughs> used the angle of nanoscale torture chambers or molecular cruelty. It's true. So by holding these molecules in little boxes for a long time, we can watch them, you know, milliseconds, seconds, minutes, essentially indefinitely. We can resolve their entire history, which is really important. And and because they are in small environments, we get very high imaging contrast, so we can see single events even in the presence of high effective concentration with very low background because they're isolated in little wells. Um, and and this is really important to deconstructing their mechanism. So it, yeah, I guess we're torturing molecules for the benefit of of science. Well, actually, it brings brings an idea. And have you been able to make um, semi permeable or semi porous or you know, wells with holes in them that only certain molecules can go through and certain ones can't. Because what if you were able to take a single virus or a single cell and put it in a well like this, whereby only physically certain molecules could get in and out and watch its behavior? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so we have been able to do that. And one of the ways is very simple. Um, so because this confinement is really based on shape, um, like you've pointed out, maybe some molecules can get in and, and others can't. Um, there's a very um, easy first step you can do to let you exchange reagents and watch reactions, which I think is what you're, you're suggesting. And um, we do have a project which um, looks at cells. So how this works, just to follow your lead, is we can first flow you know, cells into a flow cell. And then I mentioned we're squeezing the roof down with little embedded features in the floor. So the cells can fall into these little open face boxes. And instead of completely sealing the lid, what we do is we leave a very thin gap. So we can control this gap to be, you know, nanometers in size or microns in size, whatever is appropriate. And essentially the cells won't escape from the wells. And because of that, we can then flow other molecules through, expose the cells, and watch their response. So this works for cells. If we take a step back, it also works for molecules. So we have work where we've flown in, say, long DNA polymers into wells or open-face grooves, squeeze down, but not quite squeeze them shut, and leave just a thin gap, which lets us, for example, flow in proteins or other small molecules. And this is really nice. And as you pointed out in your question, it's entirely based on shape um yeah well you know it's kind of odd i don't know if you'd ever take it in this direction but you know some people say viruses may be life they may not be it's kind of a debate you know cells certainly are uh, quote unquote alive so i wonder if you can find you know if you can find a molecule for a month and sit there it probably does nothing it doesn't care you know but are there certain things you can find that based on time they start reacting or changing because they're, I don't know, they somehow sense that they're trapped. Have you ever observed that? So I think the question you're asking is really good, um, sort of getting at the question of how to build up a living system or a response system you know, so from one molecule up. And there's an entire field that's emerging that's actually called synthetic biology, which I think is where you're going with your question, where you bring in individual components and then essentially... Um, they self-assemble and start to perform function and um and yeah so i think our platform could be a really interesting way to bring in individual components and start to look at their 
you know, structure, function, relationships, and behavior as you add complexity. Um, and I, I think your question of, you know, what is life is a, is a good one because you start to see emergent behavior once you add several molecules together and you can sort of start to ask questions about what those molecular machines can do. But I, this is a topic of, yeah, ongoing research right right now, and it's very interesting. Hmm. Well, so what have you observed that, that amazed you or surprised you? You know, what kind of specific observations have you made that you were like, that's crazy, you know? Um, well, so recently, <laughs> I guess crazy is uh, relatively... Um, well, you could just say, oh, that's fascinating. You know, <laughs> but we, like, we've you been, been like, certainly confused <laughs> and surprised, yeah. Um, so one of my PhD students has been looking at um, questions on DNA binding, which um, we've been very interested in for a long time, both for fundamental interests of the biophysics of how they work, but also for um, applications to oligonucleotide therapeutics and other systems. Um, for which these are models. And so we've been trying to build up the environment to be increasingly cell-like. Um, so we've done things like vary the sequences of the molecules and how they impact binding and vary the salt conditions and the confinement. And that was relatively similar um, to what we had expected in terms of behavior. But um, one thing we started to do as we started to vary the crowding um, of the environment. So we've introduced um, other molecules or other polymers which sort of start to fill up space. And and um, as we started to do that, we started to watch our reactions. Um, so how a small you know, DNA probe finds its target site on DNA. And we've seen it to be um, actually quite accelerated under conditions that we didn't expect it to be accelerated. Um, and we thought that that was quite peculiar, and in this particular case, we're still working to explain it. But I think um, the kinds of things that are really interesting to us and where we find surprises are where sort of the physics meets biology, where structural elements can have um, kind of impact on a biochemical reaction, which you really didn't um, necessarily to expect to have such a big effect. And well, Have you seen any um, biological contortionists that... You were amazed that they, they, they changed their shape so much or they did like a dance where they changed shape multiple times in order to make a bond or a connection? Um, I think, well, in one case, we were asking questions about how shape changes. So, I mean, one of the really cool sets of movies that we've taken relates to manipulating shape of the molecules. And um, so we were asking questions about whether we could squeeze DNA into different formats and still have the biochemistry go on on the nanoscale. I don't know if you've looked at our website, but um, we found that if we could um, imprint or fabricate um, very long open-face nanogrooves in one side of the flow cell and squeeze DNA in, we found that they actually spontaneously stretched out into long, relatively rigid rods once they were squeezed down into the nanoscale dimension. So this is obviously very convenient because we've converted um, DNA, which is initially long and tangled polymers in solution into what are behaving like long rigid rods in, in nanogrooves. And I think we didn't necessarily expect that it would work so efficiently or so well. Um, so that's, I guess, an example of molecules, as you described, um, you know, behaving 
well, going into certain shape configurations, um, you know, very nicely. What about proteins? I've heard proteins are like masters of folding and they make these crazy three-dimensional shapes. Do they, can you encourage a protein to denature, let's say, and watch it change and move or renature itself or form or deform? So the scale of a protein is even smaller. Um, the manipulations that we've done with DNA are on the scale of like tens of nanometers or so by squeezing them into grooves. Um, but with proteins, the length scale is, um, you know, one to three nanometers or so. So we, it's a great question of whether we could influence the physical shapes of the proteins. And I think what we would need to do would be to enclose them into features that are more on the scale of one to three nanometers, which we haven't fabricated yet. Um, but what we have done is we've observed some reactions where these proteins initially in solution in the presence of, of crowders or changing conditions self-assemble into little droplets. And this is a collaboration with a biochemist where they've actually observed in the nuclei of cells the protein self-assembling into little droplets that look like little granules. Um, and this is an example where there was a surprise. So previously in cells, it was thought the proteins were fairly dilute and uniform, but actually it turns out with better spatial resolution and fluorescence imaging advancements and single molecule imaging, we've seen that these proteins aggregate into little droplets. And um, so it's a way, like a droplet is a way to store molecules at a very high concentration locally. So we think this may actually have an important function, but that's yet to be shown. So in our in our system, we can flow proteins in, change the conditions, squeeze them in wells, and simulate this droplet formation. And that's something we've been looking into um, in conjunction with looking in live cells. Yeah, but we haven't about, manipulated uh, protein okay. folding mechanically. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. What about uh, looking at a very simple reaction, like really really simple? You know, just two molecules bonding, but looking at it in femtosecond pulses or something, or attosecond pulses, and seeing it in freeze frame, like, bond really, really, really slowly, maybe you'd see stuff that way. I don't know. Yeah. So I think the dream would be to follow a molecular reaction, you know, from femtosecond, bonds forming from inside the molecule, all the way out to, say, you know, microseconds and milliseconds, that's different molecules binding and unbinding. Um, to seconds, which is, you know, how these molecules are consumed and used in the cells for structure function uh, relationships, and then molecules performing physical function, like the motion of cells. So you're right, you'd really like to look all the way from, you know, the internal dynamics of a molecule up to interaction to others with, you know, the performance of a cell. And that's why there are so many tools that are being developed, which work well over so many length scales and so many time scales. But where we focus is really the level of um, individual molecules interacting with each other and on time scales relevant to biological um, processes and protein DNA searches. Um, so there are other folks in chemistry who look more at the internal dynamics of molecules, which occur on these much faster time scales. Is there a scale because of, let's say, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that you just can't go to? Are there certain kinds of um atomic interactions and molecular interactions you'll just we probably will never be able to see um that's an interesting question i guess this is the domain for like particle physics so time scales and energy scales are 
inversely related in the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So what you're asking about right now um, related to you know, particle physicists um, looking at very high energy scales um, and you know, colliding atoms together to look at their inner workings, but, um, but that's, been very, that's been very successful. Um, and I'm not really an expert on that, but I, as we go to higher and higher energy scales, we resolve um, smaller and smaller time scales. Well, what I'm saying is, what if you had, um, you know, like you said, proteins are smaller. They're one to three nanometers. Are there other yeah. molecules that are even smaller that you just, you're going to have a big problem trying to resolve and measure because it's so small? Ah, uh, you're just talking about particle tracking and biological molecules, not the inner workings of atoms. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talked about Heisenberg uncertainty, I immediately went to sort of this fundamental question of the inner working of, of matter. Yeah, um, if you, if so you if you're just smaller, taking a step back to technology and image um, analysis and tracking of molecules, I mean, we, using fluorescence microscopy, we can actually track these small molecules down to even one nanometer in size. The fluorophores are relatively bright. And uh, we can follow their trajectories and image them in space and time as they bind and unbind. This is just a question of enough signal to collect on your camera or our other detector and being able to go fast enough. But uh, standard cameras available in research laboratories now go extremely fast. And there are line imaging cameras that can go even in the microsecond range now. And if you can't use a camera, you can use a avalanche photodiode or other kind of photo detector that can image um, one location, but but very, very quickly at the microsecond time scale. So I don't think we're short on technology for tracking molecular reactions. Um, okay. So what's what's what would be a happy goal of your research over the next, you know, year or a few years? What do you hope to accomplish and how would it be used? Yeah. So our research has got two parts. So one is uh, very fundamental using the relatively simple tools that we've developed to deconstruct a better understanding of, of DNA and protein interactions. And then the second part of our goal is actually very applied. So one of the shifts of our research, especially as we've developed this platform, is to use our single molecule imaging tools that are relatively easy to implement um, to look at interactions that are relevant to um, developing medicine and therapeutics. So you asked about what we're working on in the next year. So part of my group is looking at some very fundamental questions of how DNA shape influence binding interactions. But part of my group has actually started collaborating with scientists in the pharmaceutical industry to look at an area called oligonucleotide uh, therapeutics. So we're looking at how Small modified DNA probes, so they've managed to make drugs partly out of DNA, which are programmable, um, targets um, particular um, sites on RNA that are actually associated with onset of certain diseases. So I, I find it pretty exciting, this field of biologics, where we've been able to harness the power of biology to, to develop new kinds of drugs that, that are actually starting to work. Um, so in the next year, we've started some collaborations um, with pharmaceutical scientists to use our single molecule visualization tools um, to understand the mechanisms of how these things work. And another area is also gene editing. That's another kind of protein DNA search or protein DNA interaction where 
we can look at how these um, molecules, so they're called CRISPR therapeutic molecules, search for their target site, repair DNA, and perform functions that are very applicable to medicine or therapeutics. So I think in the next year, um, we're working on preliminary results there. So the, the same fundamental tools we've been using to look at protein DNA searches, we can apply to molecular systems that have this function in therapeutics. Very, very interesting. Um, all right, well, I guess we're kind of out of time. So what's, what's the best way for people to get in touch you know, with the lab to see more of what you're doing? Maybe you have some videos on what you observed on your website. Yeah. So you know, what are some resources we, for listeners? We have a website for our lab. It's on McGill Physics. Um, I guess I can look up the URL. I guess it's physics.mcgill.ca Leslie Lab. Um, and we're in Rutherford Physics building in the McGill campus in Montreal. And our lab in the past year has also spun out a startup company um, with the support of NSERC, the National Science Agency and McGill. Um, so there's actually a website for that as well, which is www.scopesys.ca. And is our, yeah, so both places um, have a description of our research and also the technology we're developing. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Leslie, literally keep your eyes peeled and uh, see all that you can see. And it'll be good to talk to you again in the future and find out more. But thanks for coming for now. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.